Good morning. You guys ready to hear a good word today? I know you are. And I'm excited to bring it. Please turn to Matthew chapter 6 and stand with me for the reading of the word. Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 8, we read, Your father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. You may be seated. Now the verse I have the honor of preaching to you this morning is verse 11. Give us today our daily bread. And in this sermon, I will attempt to draw out from this one verse two ideas. And my prayer is that the Holy Spirit will open our ears to hear the truth this morning. But I feel compelled to tell you that the sermon I have to preach to you today has been shaped by nearly two decades of work that God's been doing in my life. So I preach this morning with the authority of the Word of God. And I also preach to you with the weight of my testimony about what God has done for me. Give us today our daily bread. The first idea we'll look at is that Jesus wants you to know dependence on God. Jesus wants you to know dependence on God. Now here's the thing. West Michigan has a strong Christian subculture, doesn't it? I mean, many of us in this room were raised in the church, attending faithfully every Sunday. And some of us attending faithfully every Wednesday and every Sunday. And a few of us attending faithfully every Wednesday and every Sunday morning and every Sunday evening. And many in this room attended Christian schools and send your kids to Christian schools. And many of us are comfortable with the language of the Bible. Words like sanctification, justification, and faith. These are familiar terms. And these are all good things. But familiarity has a way of blinding us. So to be clear, the Bible has an idea of knowing that often refers to an experiential knowing. 
So when I say Jesus wants you to know dependence on God, what I mean is Jesus wants you to know God through experiencing your dependence on God. And I want to read to you a familiar text from Scripture to help us begin to see this idea with greater clarity. So I'm going to read to you a few verses from Deuteronomy chapter 8. Be careful to follow every word. Be careful to follow every command I'm giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna. See, God wanted to experience what was in the heart of his people, whether or not they would be faithful in keeping his commands. And he wanted his people to experience his faithful provision for them. And we know that God is unchanging, which means that he still wants to experience what is in your heart, whether or not you'll be faithful, that is, whether or not you'll be obedient in keeping his commands. And he still wants his church to experience his faithful provision. And as we look at the Lord's prayer, we see that the words of the prayer itself demand a posture of dependence. Give us. Forgive us. Lead us. Deliver us. Can you hear the notes of dependence ringing out from this prayer? It's as if Jesus is saying, pray as though you are totally and completely helpless. Give us. Forgive us. Lead us. Deliver us. And even the first two clauses of the prayer, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Can you hear the underlying plea? Make your name great. Cause your name to be revered and kept holy. Establish your kingdom in the hearts of your people so we can live according to your will. And the Bible gives us four analogies of our relationship to God to help us understand our dependence. The Bible describes our relationship to God as a sheep knowing its shepherd. The Bible describes our relationship to God as a subject knowing his king, a wife knowing her husband, and a son knowing his father. Now in each analogy, we are seen as being dependent on God, and God is seen 
as being responsible for our welfare? Do you recognize yourself as a sheep knowing its shepherd? A subject knowing his king? A wife knowing her husband? And a son knowing his father? Is this your perception of your relationship to God? Now, I need to take a minute here to move into the direction of spiritual blindness. Because when I ask a question like, is this your perception of your relationship to God? The fact of the matter is, is that in a room of this size, for many of us, the answer is no. No, it's not. And the thing we need to hear this morning is that in order to perceive our need, some of us have to stop pretending. Some of us have to stop pretending to be a follower of Christ just because we've been hanging around Christians our whole life. And Jesus speaks to us about being a pretender in Matthew chapter 6. In fact, this is what he has to say just before he teaches us how to pray. And when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you pray, don't keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Don't be like them, because your Father knows what you need before you ask him. I think the invitation and instruction on prayer is clear. Come as you are. Now, of course, we must never forget our greatest need, and that is our need to be saved from God's judgment over our sin. And the Bible teaches us that we need to become righteous to have any place in the presence of a righteous God. But here's the thing. We're powerless to mend our relationship with God and regain his favor, aren't we? That is, we're dependent on the blood of Christ for our salvation. Now hear what I'm about to say. If you don't think you need God's grace, you'll never ask to receive it. So what's your gut level reaction to this whole idea that Jesus wants you to know dependence on God? Is this idea offensive to you? Are you gripped with fear at the thought of experiencing your helplessness? Or does your heart leap for joy because you have learned that it is good to be but a sheep and you serve a good shepherd? Now, I want you to examine yourselves this morning. 
So here are four characteristics of people who are dependent on God. People who know their dependence on God are thankful. In fact, they're dripping in thanksgiving because they know they don't deserve the grace in which they are standing. People who know their dependence on God are humble. Their eyes have been opened to their own sinfulness and they know they deserve to be condemned for it. People who know their dependence on God are confident. They have experienced the living God. They know that he is faithful and that his love endures forever, so they're confident. People who know their dependence on God are content. They know they no longer rule over their own life. They have surrendered their will for his will, and they have found his grace to be sufficient for today. So again, I ask you, do you recognize yourself? Will you invite the Holy Spirit to continue his work in your life? Jesus wants you to know dependence on God. But when we talk about dependence on God, we also have to talk about dependence on the Word of God. Now, we don't need to look any further than Matthew chapter 4 to find this truth. You know this passage. This is Jesus' temptation with Satan in the desert. And when tempted by the devil to tell these stones to become bread, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 8. He says, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, I think it's safe to say that Jesus has an idea of bread in this context that is more holistic than ours. Or we could say that our idea of bread is often woefully incomplete. Our idea of bread often overlooks the fundamental truth that God's word is food for the nourishing of our hearts and minds. So what does it mean to live by every word that comes from the mouth of God? Well, first, it means to think on the word of God to impress his very words into your mind and to ask the Holy Spirit to help you understand and apply his word to your life. And second, it means obedience. Uh, Jesus speaks to this again in the tail end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoer. Therefore, anyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. Everyone who hears these words and puts them into practice 
Jesus is plainly saying that it is those who obey the word of God who will enter the kingdom of heaven. It is those who obey the word of God. who will experience eternal life. Man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. So if a man enters life by obeying the word of God, that is by knowing the one true God in Jesus Christ whom he has sent according to John 17, then a man dies by disobeying the word of God. That is, he enters eternal separation from the author of life. Now, I don't want you to trip over obedience as if I'm encouraging you to pursue your righteousness by works. You know that this is religious legalism. So what we're talking about is the obedience of faith. We're talking about the obedience that comes from faith. Or we could say that in light of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we respond to God with thanksgiving in our hearts and we desire to be filled by his spirit so we can live imperfectly obedient to his will. A few minutes ago, we talked about the four analogies that the Bible uses to describe our relationship to God. A sheep knowing its shepherd, a subject knowing his king, a wife knowing her husband, and a son knowing his father. Now I want you to hear the word of God speaking to you from within the context of these relationships. Listen to the word of your shepherd who says, you shall never perish. No one will be able to snatch you out of my hand. Follow me. Listen to my voice. Listen to my voice. Listen to the word of your king who says, the wedding banquet for my son is ready. Come and feast. Listen to the word of your husband who says, you are beautiful and I love you and I lay my life down for you. Be faithful to me. And have no other lovers besides me. Listen to the word of your father who says, You were dead, but now you've begun to live. You were lost, but now you are found. And all that is mine is yours. But there's more to this one verse than just the idea that Jesus wants us to know dependence on God. Give us today our daily bread. 
Now this leads us to our second idea of the morning, which is Jesus wants you, your desires to be governed by wisdom. Jesus wants your desires to be governed by wisdom. Now wisdom is practical insight and discernment gained through knowledge of God. Let's listen to what the Proverbs have to say about wisdom. I'm gonna read to you from Proverbs chapter three. Blessed are those who find wisdom, those who gain understanding. For she is more profitable than silver and yields better returns than gold. She is more precious than rubies. Nothing you desire can compare with her. Nothing you desire can compare with her. Jesus wants your desires to be governed by wisdom. So let's talk a little more about desire because the Bible says that our desires are corrupted by sin and we're conflicted. In Galatians 5, we read, for the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other. See, I think there's an undertow to this verse. Give us this day our daily bread. I think there's an underlying current right below the surface that's tugging on us and wanting our full and undivided attention. You see, the thing that comes after give us is the thing that expresses the desires that we validate and approve of. The thing that comes after give us is the thing that has something to say about us and about who we think God is. But Jesus knows that our desires are corrupt, doesn't he? So he fills in the blank for us. Give us today our daily bread. And I think if we're being honest, this is kind of outrageous. I mean, if you're like me, your prayer sounds more like, give us 10, 20, 30 years worth of bread. I mean, we are praying to the God who created the heavens and the earth after all, are we not? And he is our heavenly father, is he not? But again, Jesus knows that our desires are corrupt. So on the topic of corrupt desire, he has this to say. Now we also go back to Matthew chapter six. And this is actually what Jesus has to say just after he teaches us how to pray. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness. No one can serve two masters. 
Either he will hate the one and be devoted to the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. See, first, Jesus redirects our corrupt desires by exhorting us to invest in the eternal things. Then he makes it clear that we can't have it both ways. If our desires are healthy, everything about us will be full of light. But if our desires are unhealthy, everything about us will be full of darkness. And finally, Jesus warns us plainly by stating in no uncertain terms, you cannot serve God and money. Is money your God? Hey, did you hear the one about the rabbi and the financial advisor? Take a little break. (laughs) That's pretty intense, huh? Is money your God? Mm. Mm. Cuts. This question cuts. Figure that's not a bad spot for an intermission. All right. Set our popcorn aside. Put your milk duds back in your purse. We're about to finish this thing strong. (laughs) See, I think there's a simple litmus test for whether or not money is your God. And the test is whether or not you trust and accept that money is for God to give and not for you to desire. Money is for God to give and not for you to desire. Now to further illustrate this idea that Jesus wants your desires to be governed by wisdom, I want to read to you a story you're familiar with. It's the account of Jesus feeding 5,000 in Matthew chapter 14. Hear the word. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, They don't need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass, taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. See, Matthew's a Jew, and he's writing to a Jewish audience. And I think 
Matthew hopes that his hearers will connect this miracle of feeding the 5,000 in a remote place with what God did for the Israelites in the desert when he led them out of slavery in Egypt. So I have to take us back to Exodus 16 as we continue to flesh this out. On the 15th day of the second month after they had come out of Egypt, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them, at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. Moses said to them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need. Then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it till morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. Now notice in both accounts, the people are in the wilderness, in a remote location, unable to provide for themselves. And notice in both accounts, they all ate and were satisfied. Everyone took what they needed. And in both accounts, there were no leftovers. In Matthew's gospel, it's as if Jesus was giving the crowds and his disciples a glimpse of what it was like for their ancestors to be led by God in the desert. But in this miracle, there's a strange detail. See, up until this point, Jesus had been calling God's people to repentance and proclaiming the kingdom of heaven has come near. His disciples saw the blind receive sight the lame walk, those who had leprosy cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead raised, and the good news proclaimed to the poor. Jesus had been giving expression to the extravagance of God's kingdom. But then we read, they all ate and were satisfied, and the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. It's exactly the opposite of what we might expect to find. In keeping with the good news, we might expected, have expected Jesus to say, everyone goes home with a basket full of bread. But instead he tells his disciples, pick up the leftovers. Now remember back in the desert, some of the Israelites paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it till morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. Maybe Matthew wants us to see that this is what happens when we keep 
more than we need. When we hold on to the leftovers, our excess becomes full of maggots and begins to smell. You see, Matthew was a tax collector before Jesus said, follow me. And in that day, tax collectors were reviled by the Jews because they were often greedy and worked for the Roman Empire who occupied Israel. Tax collectors amassed personal wealth by demanding taxes in excess of what Rome levied so they could keep the difference for themselves. Maybe Matthew knew firsthand what happens to a man when he keeps more than he needs. Maybe he knew what it's like when the things you own end up owning you. It seems to me that Matthew wants his hearers to be free from this bondage, like Jesus set him free. So he points to the wilderness to warn us not to keep more than we need. Jesus understands our condition as people who have fallen short of the glory of God. So he instructs us in the path of wisdom, even with regard to our desires. Because Jesus wants your desires to be governed by wisdom. Now, at the beginning of our sermon this morning, I mentioned that this message has been shaped by nearly two decades of God's work in my life. See, for about 10 years after college, I desired to have God and money. But through a series of life experiences and business endeavors, the Lord began to show me that my desire was to be for him alone. And one day, while in the cycle of corrupt desire and repentance, the Spirit of God spoke to me. And the Lord Jesus pressed into me. Saying, why are you looking for your inheritance here? It's not here. When I called you and you came to me, I became your portion. But here's the thing about daily bread. We need to ask for it over and over again and again, day after day. This isn't something you learn and move on from. This is something you learn to abide in. I will, if you could come on up with the band and lead us in some worship here. Um, I'd like to give you an opportunity to acknowledge your helplessness 
and join me in repentance? Do you hold on to things too tightly? Do you worry when you should be trusting God? Have you been asking God for more than you need? If the Holy Spirit has been working in your heart this morning, we have these mikvah bowls up front. Please come and wash and confess your sins and receive forgiveness.